Escape to Summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy Collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra in on-trend hues like green, citron, and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charged the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league, starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's clip streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. For the love, there is nothing worse than shaving your legs. A total game changer to my beauty routine is Nair. That is right, the OG hair removal. Nair saves me so much time, and the best part is no nicks, no cuts, and you will have smooth skin for days. You have to make sure to check out Nair's new sensational shower creams and body creams. My favorite shower cream is the Moroccan Argan Oil and Orange Blossom. The scent creates the ultimate pampering experience. Smell for yourself. Try the reformulated Nair body and shower creams available at retailers nationwide and online. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This is Teddy Teapot with Teddy Mellencamp. Hi, guys. Thanks for tuning in again. I put something out there last week about what topics you guys would want to speak on. And the number one overwhelming response was addiction. So I am so excited to announce that Cameron Douglas and Jason Waller are both going to be on the podcast today. Cameron wrote a book called Long Way Home. It is incredible. I'm on chapter 26 right now. It's like a page turner. Um, He grew up he he talks about his struggles and the pressures he felt growing up as, you know, um, Michael Douglas's son, but also his years with addiction and being in prison. And I am just so grateful that he is here sharing his experience with us so that we can all learn and grow from it. So please make sure that any other topics you want us to discuss or any questions that you have on this podcast or anything else that we can dig into, email teddyt at iheartradio.com. Cameron's book, Long Way Home, talks about his struggles with drug addiction that resulted in multiple overdoses, his proclivity to crime and violence, his criminal trials, and seven years in prison, two of which were spent in solitary confinement. Wow. Thanks so much for coming in, Cameron. I'm on chapter 27 of your book. I got it last week. I am, I I can't even tell you, as I'm reading it, I am, I have so many more questions I need to ask and so do my listeners. So I'm so grateful that you're here. Can you give us a little bit of background on what led you to write the book and, you know, some of your experience? Um, So that was, it was kind of an interesting process because um, my family's always been very private. And I've sort of always followed suit with that as, as best as I could. Um, but, you know, my father kept mentioning to me about, you know, possibly writing a book about some of my experiences. And, and I was sort of wrestling with the idea. I couldn't understand why exactly. Um, so basically I realized in the end that it was really the, the ultimate uh, way of, of, of showing your love. You know, my father and mother felt that I had a story to tell and felt that maybe it could be useful. And despite the fact that it would inevitably put some of their pasts uh, back in the light, uh, they felt that it was uh, 
that it was a, that I had a story to tell. So I think it was a, a very selfless, it. selfless yeah. act of, of love on, on their behalf. But, you know, for me, once I kind of got over the initial hump of, of, you know, getting around to writing the book, it was, it's, it was an interesting journey. It was a long journey. It took about four years to write the book. Um, I started writing it about a year before I came home. So I was still in prison when I started writing the book. Um, and, and a lot of people ask, you know, if it was cathartic and it was definitely that, but it was also, it was difficult, you know, cause I had to go back over, uh, my entire life, talk to a lot of people that I hadn't spoken to in years to try to really get an understanding of what was going on. Um, but in the end of the day, I found it to be very helpful. It gave me a real perspective, uh, on, on some of my decisions, um, and, uh, what led me to making those decisions and, and in the end, trying to make something useful out of all of that pain and, and wreckage that there was. I, I read that you started experimenting with drugs around the age of 13. Mm -hmm. Around when did you kind of realized, wow, like this is this is something more serious? Because something I often hear, especially from the younger generation, especially from like an affluent younger generation is I'm just experimenting. I'm in college. I'm just having fun. Like, how do you know? yourself that things are going to that point, but also how did the people around you in your life know that they need to start taking action or can they even take action? Well, I think there's a, there's a fine line between partying hard and having a good time and being a, a full blown addict. So I think, I mean, some telltale signs for oneself is like, if you're staying up for days on end, you're probably a red flag. You know, if, uh, you know, things like that, if, if your life is becoming unmanageable, it's, it's probably uh, a red flag. I think that, I, I definitely think that, you know, partying and experimenting is, is okay and it's part of growing up. Um, but I guess, I guess the real indicator is when your focus starts to be uh, really revolving around getting high rather than leading a productive life, I think is really when you're probably in, in trouble. And, 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 and hopefully you can either have, you know, the insight or, or, or the wisdom. I think some souls are just older souls and just have done this more times and, and get it quicker. Um, some of us, it takes uh, much longer, like myself. And some of us, unfortunately, uh, never get it, so... And I, I know you talked a lot about like the pressure of growing up with, you know, a famous parent and the pressures that you put on yourself. Do you think that despite those pressures, like I, I'm, I'm similar where I grew up with having, you know, putting my own pressure on myself, right. but I kind of went the opposite way where I was so scared mm -hmm. to try anything or do anything because if I were to mess up, my parents had me sign a contract <laughs> when I came to California that said, okay, if you get in any trouble, you have to move back to Indiana. And I was like, you know what? That is, that is death defying right there <laughs> enough, but I never tried anything. But in, you know, in turn with that pressure, I kind of became super anxious. I'm type A, I'm OCD, like all of those things. So I think it can, develop itself in many different ways. But do you think that regardless of your upbringing, that is something that would have shown anyway? Well, listen, I think the first thing you have to look at is, is your genetics, you know, does it run in your family? And if it does, I think you need to be more aware, but you know, back to your question and your point really is I didn't, in all fairness, I can't sit here and say that I had a lot of pressure heaped on me by my family. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to try and uh, live up to my family's name. And I just uh, found the way that I felt that I was doing that was, was destructive. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, look, I think we're, we're, every one of us is dealt a hand in life. And it's, and it's the way that we, uh, we play that hand. I certainly... Uh, was never, was always loved and cared for. Um, I just had, you know, issues that I was wrestling with and the way that I chose to deal with those issues uh, led down a pretty rough, rough path for me. And to start, I mean, you 
did have a little bit of access to money? Do you think if right from the beginning, I mean, a lot of people are writing in because their kids are, you know, experimenting with drugs. They're starting to worry. It's going down a more aggressive path mm-hmm. and they're not knowing how to handle it, but they love their kids. They want to take care of their kids, but how do you know when to cut them off or, you know, be, the access to money, is that creating well, even th- a bigger monster? I, I think it's like this. I mean, depending on where, if you're dealing with somebody that's you feel is, is struggling with addiction, I think you have to really take a good hard look at, you know, where they are exactly in their journey. And I think um, there does come a point where you do have to sort of let go and, and let them find their way, hopefully. Uh, but until that point, I think you, you personally, I think you should try to do everything you can do in your power to, uh, to, to, to help them. Yeah, because I was also reading, you know, through a lot of it, you would have either um, there was Aaron in your book mm-hmm. that was by your side for a long time. And do you think that now in retrospect, do you think, wow, if if she would have cut ties with me earlier, things would have been different? Or if this person would have cut me off completely, or do you think it wouldn't have mattered? So I think, you know, looking back, on everything, I think one thing that really would have been helpful to me had I been open to it was uh, was therapy. I had had uh, uh, many opportunities to to work with therapists as a as a uh, young man, and was always just you know really closed off to it and, and not open to it at all. Of course, now I work with a therapist on a regular basis, and I find it to be extremely helpful. Um, and so I think that's one thing for sure that maybe would have made a difference. It's hard to pinpoint any little details or relationships. I think, you know, it's funny because your parents always love you and the people that are closest to you love you. And they try to, when you're starting to go down this road, they like to point the finger at everyone else being right. a bad influence. But the truth is, I was the bad influence on everybody else. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's just, uh, I don't know. Everybody has, I, I'd like to think maybe that, that maybe we all have a, a, a journey and, and some of the, uh, the experiences that we go through is, is necessary for, um, uh, helping us to become equipped to lead the life that we're meant to, to lead. Uh, that's maybe optimistic, but who knows? What, what do you think was, I mean, I know this is a crazy question, but what do you think was harder? Like when you were in the throes of addiction and overdosing or being in jail and solitary confinement? Well, I mean, they, they are both uh, prisons, you know, in a sense, uh, you know, one is, uh, is, is a prison of your own making, uh, through addiction, just like a ball and chain around your ankle and, um, and that's, that's difficult, but it's, it's, it's a choice, uh, too, that, that you're making and, and uh, a lot of it is miserable and that's the insanity uh, of addiction. Uh, I think a lot of addicts struggle with is that they just, they're so unhappy with what's going on in their lives, but they just can't let go for whatever reason. One, maybe that's what they count on for a little bit of relief or you know, two, they've been doing it so long that that's all they know. Um, and then prison is a whole different animal that's just uh, thrust upon you. And, and for me, I had really no uh, experience uh, or no idea what I was in store for. So the learning curve for me was, was very sharp <laughs> there, to say the least. Um, and what was solitary confinement like? Because you were there for almost two years, correct? I was, yeah, it was, uh, well, I will say that it's amazing, uh, what the human, it's amazing how humans can adapt to most any situation, one, and, and two, I learned the amazing will that a human has to survive. Um, so yeah, solitary, that's a, that's a whole nother topic that I feel strongly about because I've had my own personal experiences with it, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a necessary tool, sure, for, for, uh, for prisons to, to monitor the, the, the safety of someone or the safety of uh, individuals around that person. 
but it needs to be implemented in the short term. These days, they they just toss you in there and they and they leave you there really for you know for not a good reason, and it's. Uh, you can make things worse. Well, I think I mean, look, it's like if you put somebody in a cement box the size of an elevator um, for a long period of time, does that make them less angry? No. <laughs> Right. Does that make them more stable? No. You know what I mean? It's just you could just go down the list and realize it's not really going to be helpful. And I think that's, I mean, that's not up for debate. What's, right. what's up for debate is is when are they going to start making these necessary reforms? Because the reality is, and this I can also speak from experience, is, is our prison industrial complex in this country is not... Um, is not uh, is not made to reform individuals. It's it's made to break them down, and and during your 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 time in prison, uh, you're treated like an animal. And what happens when you're treated like an animal for for a long period of time? You start acting like an animal, and then one day you get you get kicked out the door, and you and you move in next door to a, a regular uh, uh, tax paying, law abiding citizen. So it's like they need to do a better job of, of turning out men and women that are, that are uh, reformed. Right. And you talk a lot about like, um, I don't like, I don't like to say the word, but like womanizing or fighting or any of those things. Do you think that all goes hands in ha- hand in hand with addiction or do you think they're all kind of separate things that have to be worked on or, or, or once the drugs are gone, the other things go away as well? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've never considered myself a womanizer. I mean, I am kind of like a, I guess, a romantic at heart. I, <laughs> Not maybe womanizer. Yeah. Maybe that was the other person I had on wording. Right, Sorry. Right. But, uh, I, but, but uh, you had said you were with multiple people at one time, but you would keep certain girlfriends around. I did. I did go through. I did. Uh, yes. I, 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 so what happened is, is I had a, I had a really rough relationship for a number of years um, and when her and I finally parted ways, I told myself that I wouldn't allow myself to be in another relationship until I was completely ready for it. And I did this because I didn't like the lies that I was telling when I was in this relationship. I didn't like the behavior, the guilt that I felt for not acting properly uh, in this relationship. So I just did that as a kind of a way to, to stop be more the honorable. Yeah, yeah. And just, you know, live honestly. Um, <laughs> but uh, maybe it didn't, it didn't come across that way. I don't know. No, it did. No, <laughs> I, I might. Sorry about the wording. Um, and then also I am on, as I said, chapter 27. So I am at the part where you've started using heroin again in the, in the prison. Mm-hmm. How do you ultimately get clean? Without ruining the, the, without ruining the book, but for our listeners, like how did that actually happen? And then how are you able to stay? Well, so for me, getting clean was, uh, was an evolution in prison. I certainly didn't get clean right away. My, my prison, uh, sojourn was, was atypical to say the least. I, I started, uh, I started my journey at a minimum security prison and I, and I worked my way, uh, diligently up to a high security prison, which is where I ended up doing most of my time. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to work your way down, you know, but, uh, I had a difficult time adjusting. Um, and, but the turning point for me was, uh, when I was given my second sentence, which basically doubled my sentence, it turned a five-year sentence into a 10-year sentence. And, uh, and I came back from the sentencing and I was in the box at that time. I was in, they call it solitary confinement. It's a and you can't go out at all. You couldn't even work out anymore at this point. Oh, no, you, you have to work. I work out in my cell. But in your cell, you couldn't even go, but no, nothing else. You have, so the way it's supposed to work is you get um uh, one hour a day, uh, in the outdoors. But what that is, is you, it's, it's one hour a day in another cement box with a cage over the top and you can see the sky, but, uh, it's, it's not, it's not like being outside. Yeah. It's just kind of having some fresh air, which is nice. Um, but no, the exercise was, was important for me through, throughout. That was one of the cornerstones um, of my routine and the routine is really what 
help me get through it and make the necessary changes. Um, but back to, you know, how really I, I got sober, how it began anyways, was I arrived back to my cell and there were just, uh, there had been a riot in, uh, in the, uh, in that unit, in the special housing unit, they call it the shoe. Um, and guys, when they riot, they'll plug their toilets and they'll just, they'll overflow the cell with water. Uh, and so I arrived to my cell and there was like four inches of water on the ground and you don't have shelves. So all my books, all my pictures, <sighs> all my letters, everything was just like ruined, soaking wet. And I, and I walked in the cell, they took my handcuffs off and, and I just felt something inside of me kind of, uh, cracking or, or breaking. And, and, and I felt at that moment that I had two paths left open to me and, and one path would have been one that I probably would not have made it back from. And the other path was one that gave me a little bit of purpose, a little bit of light in that moment, which was I came up with the idea that I would try to make each day count towards putting myself in the best possible position to to make a life for myself when I was finally released. And so I found that that started working for me. You know, it got me out of the rack every morning, got me motivated to, you know, built a little curriculum for myself. Um, and slowly, slowly, I uh, started getting stronger. I started realizing that indeed I did have these traits like discipline and drive uh, that I thought I just uh, inherently wasn't, wasn't born <laughs> you with. You built your confidence. Yeah, exactly. Just started building myself. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then basically a couple of years down the line, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good, strong, focused. feel like I have, you know, my priorities in the right order, but I'm still uh, dibbling and dabbling with, with heroin from time to time. And, and, uh, and then I reached a point where I just couldn't rationalize anymore, uh, my heroin use with, uh, you know, telling myself I was doing everything I could do to put myself in the best position when I was finally released. Uh, so finally I was able to, to give that up. I'd say this probably about three, three years before I came home, like 2014, 2015, 2015. Wow. And then when did you meet, um, I, I know you have a daughter. Mm -hmm. So when did you meet uh, your significant other and how did that happen? And, you know. So, so that's a, a funny story, actually. So I met uh, Vivian is, is my girlfriend and the mother of my daughter and, and, uh, and we lived together. And, and so I met Vivian probably like 15 years ago here in LA. Uh, she was, she was uh she was modeling at a, at a runway show and you know, they do like these wacky kind of themes sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> for this run. So part of her costume was she had this huge blue Afro. And I, uh, after the show I was backstage and I was talking to her and we were trying to have a serious conversation and I just couldn't get over that huge blue Afro. <laughs> so I told her, I said, look, I'm trying to take you seriously, but the hair is a little <laughs> difficult. And, but anyway, we stayed friends uh, for a while after that. Both of us were in a very different place at that point in our lives. And, and then I didn't see her for, for years. And then uh, a few years before I came home, I got a letter from her. And she had, you know, gone through a lot of changes in her life. And, and we started writing each other letters because I didn't have my phone privileges at the time. And getting to know each other like that kind of, Really getting to know really somebody. getting to yeah. know somebody, right? Like it was just kind of, I didn't, I didn't know her in this way, and so, and then at the time we we got back in contact. My uh, my visitation privileges were also I didn't have those, and so it was about a year and a half till I was getting those back. So we had about a year and a half to just write letters, uh, and then when I got those back, she came to visit, and she basically uh, you know was there waiting for me when I was released from prison. And then we had a, a little girl, let's see, not even a year after I came home. Yeah. So she's, it's been, it's been great. And my daughter is, uh, is amazing. She's probably, or is definitely my biggest, uh, teacher in life right now. 
Um, so it's, 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 I mean, I, I feel really blessed these days, you know, I mean, I've obviously, you know, I've been, well, here, lucky, I'm fortunate to say that, you know, when I came home, I was able to really still uh, dig in and stay disciplined and really, you know, work at building a life for myself. Uh, Finish this book, been working on acting and screenplay writing and everything's starting to come together. So that's what I was going to ask about acclimating back into society. And because I have a listener question that was directly for you. It was, um, Cameron, my son has been struggling with an addiction to heroin for 10 years, and he's currently incarcerated and will be released on December 2nd. My husband and our four other children are in panic mode. We want him to go into a sober living community for a year while he finishes his parole, but he is refusing to. I am paralyzed because I'm afraid he will die. He has no plan, and he needs to learn coping skills and participate in therapy. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Well, so depending on how, I mean, I don't know what his, what his legal situation is, but he should be mandated to go into a halfway house. He's done a little bit of time. Um, and that can be very helpful. It's it, look, when you're in prison, the last thing you want to think about doing is going into a halfway house when you're released, but it is, uh, it, the adjustment is, is not easy. And, and, and I can vouch for that. I, I'm, I'm somebody who thought it was going to be uh, nice and smooth and it was very difficult for me. So, so I think that hopefully her son, <laughs> and he probably won't like me saying this, but hopefully her son will have to go into a halfway house and I think that'll be helpful. But the truth is, Teddy, which is, you know, what I was telling you is that there comes a point where, you know, sometimes a person is so far along in their journey, in their addiction that there's nothing that you can do except for just hope and pray that they find their way. And you have to take a little bit of the pressure off yourself and off your family uh, because that's the, that's the cold, hard reality of this thing. And do you think in that case, like an ultimatum works or is that just going to put, you know, could he possibly be saying he doesn't want to go in because he just wants to get home and use? Sure. I mean, that's probably what it is if he doesn't even realize that's what it is. Um, that's that, you know, that addict sort of, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's crafty, but, you know, I think at this point, I mean, he's in prison and he's obviously, he's been doing this for 10 years. It's a long time to be doing heroin. It's not an easy habit to, to keep up and running. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I, I'm sorry to say, but I, you know, I think he's probably just going to have to, and maybe he is already at that point where he's ready to, to, to change some things. So hopefully that's, uh, that's what they're going to find when he comes home. Yeah. Um, so since you have been out and now that you're doing all of these positive things, uh, what are some other tools that we could give listeners? You know, of course, that's great that you've been able to find your why and all of those things and work hard. But for somebody who's struggling to even get to that point. Yeah. What could you what could you share? So so I, in my opinion and for me my routine is, is extremely important. So I think you have to have an ironclad routine that works for you and stick to it. So my, the, the cornerstone of my routine is, is, uh, is meditation and, and exercise. So uh, that's sort of the cornerstone. And then I build around that. Right. And, and, and so I think that success and, um, I'm trying to think because happiness is not, but I think, you know, success and fulfillment, I think really comes through having your priorities in the right order and having the discipline to follow through on those priorities. So, so your routine will help you do that, right. you know, and then you just have to, in my opinion, you have to take a good hard look at, you know, what your priorities really are. Are they healthy? And then, and then really ha- dig in and follow through on, on what it takes to, to see those priorities work Feeling good. Into fruition. Um, another big question is how do you bring addiction up in a constructive manner when they always get defensive? I mean, I think the best way to do it is, is not by beating around the bush. I think if you, if there's somebody that you care about and you see them, you know, re- really struggling uh, and you have X, Y, and Z reason why, I think you should just lay that out on the table and have a talk with them and say, look, we think you're messed up. 
this is why we think you're messed up. And, you know, what, tell me why we're wrong kind of thing. I mean, from my from reading your book, there was a part that a couple of times where the most frustrated you ever seemed was when you thought you were going to do something and you were tricked into something else. Yeah. I mean, me personally, I, uh, that's why I say to you, I yeah. think, I think being upfront is, is really the best, the best way, you know, to really just like sit down with, with the person that you care about enough to sit down and have this conversation with and have a real heart to heart. One other question. Um, somebody wrote in, I'm on the road to recovery, but relapse is one of the hardest forms of shame for me to carry. How do I let go of that? That's a good question. And that's, that's an issue that I still wrestle with myself. Um, I mean, I have, I have a lot of guilt and shame surrounding, um, many years of my life. And, and it's interesting because it's, it's, it's there. So I'm, I'm learning now how to start to let, let go of that. Um, and you know, I think for me, when I start you know, feeling that, that guilt and shame, uh, a little stronger than usual. I try to, you know, I try to just let myself know. I mean, look, no, nobody knows ourselves better than ourselves. Right. So if you know that you're doing your best then that's all you can do. Uh, and if other people are willing to forgive you, then you need to be willing to forgive, forgive yourself. yourself. Yeah. Oh, well, I, we have to take a break, but thank you so much for sharing and being so vulnerable. I know that even reading your book and I, I know how many lives you're changing. And appreciate that. so thank, thank you. you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You like to watch the new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump. Join Lisa and her hand-selected staff at Chateau Rosabelle, a glamorous estate in the French countryside, as they live, work, and play together 24-7. Vanderpump Villa is where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. Don't miss the new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. Season five promises new horizons for the entire Kardashian clan. And if you're looking for steamy streams, check out Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise. The sizzling new reality show set on the Caribbean island of Grand Cayman, where the rich come to play. But be warned, it's a small island and secrets don't stay secret for long. So come check out what's new on Hulu this month. It's streaming now and it's waiting for you on Hulu. Do you want $0 delivery fees? Try Dash Pass by DoorDash. You won't regret it. Whether it's food from your favorite restaurants, groceries from across town, or anything in between, Dash Pass is the most affordable way to get everything you need delivered right to your door. Get more from delivery for less with Dash Pass, $0 delivery fees, and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for Dash Pass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for Dash Pass today only on DoorDash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Hi, Jason. How are you? 
I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be a part of it. Well, I um, have been, you know, I've been researching you a lot the last couple of days that I, you know, blown away with all the work you've done with um, your sober living facility, because a lot of our listeners, that is a huge question that they're asking is, you know, my kid, my daughter, or my son or my husband, you know, this has changed and they don't want to go into a sober living facility. And I was just kind of wanted to start with that and how important that is. Well, I just, I, I'm more than happy to discuss that. I wanted to let you know, I, I am no longer actually doing the sober living stuff. I'm very involved with aftercare and all those components, but uh, my actual, we actually stopped doing the aftercare piece, which I wish we didn't. It is still very, very important. And it's something that is, is much needed, but I've directed my, you know, my efforts into a much more advocacy role. Okay. I feel like it would be a much, it's much more pertinent to be able to do stuff like that. Uh, but I'm more than happy to talk about anything related to, you know, substance abuse, mental health recovery, whatever you want to talk about. Oh, perfect. Well, I, I guess let's just start then with how are you doing currently? Honestly, if things were any better, I'd be in heaven. I mean, I, I'm living my best life. You know, I've, I've been able to really achieve uh, balance in my life. I'm able to live in the moment, be present. Uh, I got an amazing family, an amazing wife. Uh, and really making an impact, you know, on people's lives that struggle with this disease. And it's something that, you know, I really found my passion through, through recovery. It's just been, it's incredible. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's been its ups and downs through the way, you know, through the process, but overall, um, you know, things are absolutely incredible right now. Um, do you feel like it's still a struggle every day? I had, um, Cameron Douglas on right before you, and we were talking about how he's able to remain sober and he was saying a huge right. part for him is a routine and that's what Correct. keeps him, you know, you know, for lack of better words, accountable to feeling good. Um, is that similar case right. for you? 100%. Well, by the way, I love Cameron. Great guy. Uh, great story, by the way. But I mean, this isn't, this is not uh, alcoholism. It's alcoholism, right? So, I mean, it's something we have to work on on a daily basis. And to his point, you know, I do have a routine every single morning I wake up, you know, I do a morning meditation. I do a prayer. Uh, I send out a gratitude list to 10 other individuals of three things that I'm grateful for. Not only what I'm grateful for, but why, because the why is where the meat really lies to help you understand that not only do you have a lot to be grateful for, but you actually have more than you need. Uh, and then either I go to the gym or I go to a meeting. Uh, and that's how I start my day off every single day. Don't steer away from it because you know, when I was active in my addiction, it was something that I worked on 24 seven to remain high and under the influence. And when you are sober, you have to put the same effort in to maintain, uh, maintain sobriety. It's so crazy that regardless of what, what it is in life, if it's addiction or depression or anxiety, following a routine is what actually always makes you feel better, but it's the one thing you really don't want to do. It is. It, it, it's what do they say? It's much harder. It's much easier to break. Uh, it's much harder to break a bad habit than it is a good one, right? Right. But I think it's in in this in this world that we live in today. It's we're so prone to instant gratification, you know, where there's so much influence out there, and I think a routine really draws you closer to self, so you can actually identify who you are and what it is that you're wanting to pursue. And that's what I've gotten out of a routine is really self-identification of me. I've got to, the best part about sobriety for me is I've got to know I got to know myself. Uh, because for so many years, I didn't know who I was. I was so lost, uh, you know, and, and I had no course of what direction I wanted to take when I was under the influence. It robbed me of everything that was important to me. Um, and, you know, through sobriety and in recovery, uh, it's allowed me to get to know self and really pursue the things that I really love and enjoy. And something else that I was talking to Cameron about that I wasn't sure if it would resonate with you as well. We were talking about having, like, you were on the... Laguna Beach or the hills when all of this started, right? So you had a lot of, you you had the financial ability to be able to do these things. And I was saying out the same thing kind of went with Cameron. Do you think if you had less money, it would have been less prevalent in your life? Or do you think it wouldn't have mattered? You would have figured it out. No, it would. I mean, at the end of the day, it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, I came from a very successful family, if you will. I came, but I also came from somebody, you know, I came from a solid foundation of, of you know, I had uh, good morals, good values, was raised right, had parents who were unbelievable. I mean, definitely the fame added fuel to the fire. 
But ultimately, before any of that stuff happened, I mean, I can even identify when I was 13 or 14 years old without having to utilize substances, substances or drugs. I noticed that I had, you know, underlying issues, whether that was self-worth, self-esteem, uh, you know, and, and many other things, depression, anxiety. I struggled with OCD at a very young age and all those things kind of compelled. But there was not there was not resources or outlets to be able to talk about that even just, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, compared to where we're at today, I mean, we've progressed so much more. And, you know, just being able to reach out today versus back then is, is in a totally different spot. Uh, you know, the money piece definitely, you know, I mean, it, it made things, it, it, it heightened it. But, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, that wasn't the core issue. And a lot of questions were coming in that, you know, they have somebody who's struggling with addiction that is in their life. And they are... Every time they try to talk to them, the person is super defensive. So now they're feeling deflated. Right. Like, is there a kind of like how to or is there any kind of inf- or information that you can share with those out there that are struggling to communicate with that person in their life? That's a very, very good question. I think at the end of the day is is people need to get educated on on the disease of addiction. Right. I mean, there is no such thing as recreational use of heroin or meth uh, or drinking a bottle of vodka a day or, you know, snorting, whatever it may be, taking a bunch of Valium or benzos, whatever, whatever your drug of choice is. So I think it's understanding, you know, addiction does not dictate who we are, but it does not justify our actions. And I think it's imperative that people approach this just like any other disease that, you know, that this is, it's got to come from love. It's got to come, you know, with, with compassion and, and understanding and, you know, because it's, it's somebody that's got to wake up every day and utilize one of those drugs to get through their day. Obviously, they're in a very bad spot. So I think it's it's really coming from it with, with love is a big piece of it, but also uh, setting boundaries and knowing when you're contributing to, to, to when you're benefiting somebody versus when you're causing more harm, because that's a big factor in this is wherever there's an alcoholic or an addict, there's a codependent. And sometimes they're just as sick, if not sicker, meaning that they, you know, like, for example, my parents, many times kept throwing pillows. They were literally loving me to death uh, when I should have fallen. And, right. you know, again, is, is when I was willing to get support or get help uh, to be able to be there and support me, whether that's through friends, family, whatever it may be. But also when I'm in a place where I'm not wanting to do that, you don't want to enable negative behavior. So how do you know if you're enabling versus actually being helpful? I think it's setting, it's clear line boundaries with it is, is setting up and it's, it's getting, and sometimes you have to get clear cut direction from individuals as well, because that's the thing is this disease is so multifaceted, right? That sometimes it's, it's imperative to get outside counsel with this because when you have it, when you're just a mom and a dad trying to play, you know, the, the mother or the father figure to your son or daughter or whatever role it may be, it's outside your scope. It's just like when you're dealing with somebody that has cancer, you're, you're, you're trying to do as much as you can to get them to the right place. Right. And I think sometimes that's, that's the place where it's, 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 if you're at a spot when it's that deep and you don't know if you're contributing more harm or good, I would highly advise that you seek outside help to really help you with that. And that's because it's, it's, they want their mom or dad or whatever the relationship to be to, to have that support from that person, not try to be the professional. Well, I had read, um, I, I think you were arrested something like eight, 18 times. Is that accurate ish? Oh, a lot, a lot, a lot of times. What was your final, like actual, I, I, your breaking point. When were you like, I'm done. I mean, I know there's been a relapse, but I, how, what was that point? And what do you think is, is a way that, that my, yeah, go ahead. No, I call that my moment of clarity, right? Where I really <laughs> identified and surrendered to the disease and that I admitted that I had a problem and that I was willing to get help. Uh, you know, because just for people that don't know my story from, you know, the ages of 17 to, to 22, 23 years old, I went to 14 different treatment centers from Florida, to Hawaii, every state in between, you know, I was arrested multiple times, uh, you know, obviously went through a very public battle with addiction. And what that led me to is, is all those times, and we can talk about, you know, going to those different treatments and all those things, they instilled different things along the way. But the biggest thing is I was not willing or motivated during that time. And what really transitioned is, you know, addiction not only took me to the depths of, of contemplating suicide, but actually attempting. So I was at a spot where I had I was not wanting to live any further. Um, and this draw, draw me back into a spot where I was actually in the therapist's office yet again with my mom and dad um, and my parents, who play a very pivotal role in, in our lives. Uh, you know, my dad, somebody that I look up to. Uh, a, a lot. Um, and I've never seen him break down before, but I'll never forget in uh, 2010 of July, uh, you know, he sat there across uh, for me and my mom and the therapist. And he just goes, look, we don't know what we're going to do anymore. Um, 
you know, we're lost, uh, you know, our marriage is suffering, uh, you know, and we're like two planks of wood waiting for the phone call that you're dead. And, and like when he said that, when he, you know, painted that picture of them waiting, you know, laying in bed, just waiting, you know, like two planks of wood waiting for the phone call that I'm dead, whatever it was, there was some form of, there was just a moment of clarity. Like I said, I was in a spot where I had no motivation to want to do this for myself. And I don't want to sound contradicting because my parents were the motivating factor for me to have some form of willingness, which translated into me being able to obtain recovery and really surrendering. Um, So that was that moment when I kind of like something clicked, the light came on and I said, look, I know I don't care enough about myself to do this, but my parents and family and close friends uh, became my motivating factor. And that's what, you know, it transcended into, you know, multiple months of sobriety for that reason. And then over time, after I actively arrested disease, after I got stabilized uh, and was really living a life in recovery, it became something that I actually wanted. And that's the thing I think a lot of people don't understand is, is when somebody's active in their addiction, they don't, they lose the right to make their own decisions. They are not thinking correctly. Right. The way that somebody's frontal cortex operates, which is your, your executive functioning skills in your brain does not work. And that's why there's got to be a disruption to this process, whether it's through, you know, intervention or whether it's people getting arrested or something that's major has got to happen because they're not thinking correctly. And like I said, being I was not in the the clear state of mind going to this therapy session. It was really kind of like a a come to Jesus, if you will, trying to figure out what direction we're going to take. But it was that moment where, you know, I saw them being very vulnerable. Uh, and for me, it was it was it was a God shot moment because that's that's the moment that changed my life. for the better. And I have a lot of younger listeners and I was overwhelmed with how many people wrote in, you know, I'm sick of this person asking me if I'm struggling in addiction. I, I love to go and party and I'm just hanging out with chicks and I want to do that. You know, it became like, it's this big social thing and they're kind of defensive about it. And they're wanting to know how to get these people off their back. But my question is, how do you know if you're in that stage where you're telling yourself, oh, I'm just having fun, I'm partying recre- recreationally, that like, no, you you probably have a problem. Well, look, I mean, something that I go by is, is personally is there's no normality in escaping reality, right? But for those that are out there, because like, I'm not against people that can enjoy and have recreational use and enjoy themselves, but I look at it as if, if I look at addiction, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, food, whatever it is, if whatever it is you're struggling with is derailing you from you hitting your ultimate goals and it's knocking you off balance of where you want to be in life, it's something to identify with. Right. And do you think you could even, a lot of the time you hear, oh, well, I don't even know what I want to do in life. So this is fine. This suits me for now. You, you do hear that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, you're not giving yourself the best opportunity to reach your fullest potential when you're under the influence. Uh, and I think again, is, is, is what are you taking? What, you know, and how often are you using? I mean, there's so many different studies and statistics that are out there that, you know, doctors, there's actual evidence-based, you know, things that are coming out today where you can actually take a test to see, you know, I mean, you can take a test to see if you struggle with substance abuse or alcoholism. There's different things out there. Oh, there, I didn't even know that. That's amazing. Yeah. So what I can do is after this, I'll send you, you know, there's specific, there's 12 questions on being an alcoholic. Uh, you know, if, if you struggle with alcoholism, if you answer, you know, four out of these 12 questions, you probably have issues with alcoholism. So I'm more than happy to send Please, those, we will definitely post those. Things. Yes. And then I know that you are um, married and you have a daughter now. So congratulations. Um, I had Thank a, you very much. Um, so t- I have a two-parter, but I'll ask you the first one first. Uh, pa- for In regards to parenting, how do you think that you will talk to your daughter in regards to alcohol or drugs or whatever it may be god you had to go there such a loaded question right? <laughs> well i want to know now for my kids i'm like i need to you know i think it's such an important conversation that we all tiptoe around i mean i remember like just thinking okay i just i i don't want to die i'm scared to try this because i heard this happen to one person but that was just fear-based but i had no actual knowledge where i have other friends that tried everything because they were like told oh it's just like blah 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 and then really they're trying you know meth Right. Well, so no, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. And I think from, from my perspective and everything that I've gone through and what I've learned, I've, you know, I've got very educated around the disease model of this and it's, it's both behavior and biology play a role into addiction, you know, that, that classify it as a brain disorder. That's kind of what I've come up with. But I think with that being said, to break that down is, is 
the evidence-based modalities that we've seen is there's actually studies out there that if you can actually have somebody stay away from drug use or alcohol use until they're 21 years old to let their brains, you know, almost fully develop, they have a 90% chance of not having addiction issues. Wow. So that, from what I've learned, I mean, in my household, when Delilah is, you know, under our roof, I mean, she's not going to be utilizing any drug. I'm not going to be the parent that's going to let her experiment or do things like that because, you know, for me is, is with what I've learned today is we have that evidence to show that, you know, in that, that, dem- that time frame, uh, it's so imperative that we steer clear of that stuff. And, and the potency and the different types of drugs that are out there today, they're just so different from even 10 years ago. I know, it's frightening. Uh, so, I mean, the way I'm going to approach it is, is let her know, I'll be open and vulnerable. Let her know what the struggle is, that it runs in our family. Uh, you know, and I, I will be very transparent with her to, to let her know that this is something that, is, is, that I had to deal with and that it's affected us tremendously. And, and again, it's, thank God she's two right now, and I think we're on a spot where we're going to have so much more knowledge and education around this every year that, that goes on from here. But, I mean, the main thing is, is, is there's not going to be any drugs or alcohol in my house when she's, when she's under our roof. Yeah. Uh, and she could be upset about that. But uh, based on the scientific evidence, uh, I want to give her the best opportunity that she possibly can. And more, more overly, is I want to instill in her that you don't need drugs and alcohol to have fun. I mean, <laughs> drugs and alcohol rob me from everything I love. I grew up in Laguna Beach, grew up surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding, wakeboarding, uh, you know, playing baseball, all the things I love. And I stopped doing every single thing when I started using heavily. Right. And, you know, I'm out here, I'm sitting in Kauai right now, you know, and I'm, I'm on a surf trip with some buddies and stuff. And I mean, I get to embrace life. Like there was a whole crew of us that went out to dinner last night and all of us were sober. And it's just so funny to, to people watch and just to see what people <laughs> see, think is fun. I think there's just a false perception on what is really a false fun. reality. And, you know, I want my, it is false into reality. And in and, and that, in that same vein, like, is there certain things like, okay, I don't, I don't know if your wife has a glass of wine or if you're filming the Hills or any of those things, are there any triggers for you now that you're just like, I need to get out of the situation or how do you handle that? If you have been triggered? Great question is, you know, there, there are, it's, it's the trigger or the obsession to use. It, it can be oh, very overwhelming, but I basically, when I go into a situation, it's so like my wife is very mindful. She is a normie. She can have a glass of wine, take it or leave it. You know, when we first met, what really drew me to her is how supportive and dedicated she was to helping me in my recovery because she literally stopped drinking for over a year to support me in my recovery back in 2010. And that showed her dedication to it. And today she's very mindful. She literally asks still to this day, are you, you know, are you good if I have a glass of wine or, you know, and, and we communicate. Communication is key. But if we go into an environment like I, like the hills and, and going back into relapse, because that's, you know, relapse is, is something that, that, uh, that happens. Um, and it's something to be mindful of. But it's anytime I go into a situation where I know there may be an uncomfortability, like for work or different things, I have an exit strategy. You know, I have a couple guys that I, I let know of the environment that I'm going into, uh, and that I, you know, I, I may need may need to reach out to them. Uh, you know, and and I let my wife know. I communicate with her if I'm feeling uncomfortable, and if I get to a spot where I'm, I'm really, you know, very uncomfortable, I'll, I'll tell my wife we got to go. And in your most recent relapse. What do you think was the driving force that you were able to stop again and recommit? Do you think it was the fact that your wife gave you an ultimatum or I, I don't know what, what the case was, but I'm just asking. Well, no, this will, well, this, well, I'll just give you, a, this is something that for me is, is it was not even related to, to the obsession of, of substances or different environments. This is actually something else that I was never privy to. And I never really had, a, I never had an issue with body imaging, if you will. Like I said, growing up, I was always active, athletic was always in, in shape to some degree, even when I was in my addiction, I never got super out of shape. Uh, but this time after I had gotten out of treatment and was sober for, you know, a length of six months, you know, six months, uh, you know, I actually had gained a lot of weight from the last time your body just doesn't, you know, as you get older, obviously your system doesn't work as well. And, and I'd gained a lot of weight and I was super uncomfortable in my own skin. And, you know, every day when you wake up, you know, and, and you take a shower and get ready, what do you see? You see yourself in the mirror, and I didn't reach out about that. It was something that was new uh, for me, which was imaging stuff and, and being, you know, bloated and just in a, you know, thought my system would, would come back in. And then obviously being on camera, that did not help. That uh, made things very uncomfortable. And, and as opposed to opening up and talking about it, uh, I isolated. And ultimately, it took me back to using. And then when I used, it was a, a one-day thing. But when I woke up, 
you know, I sat there with my wife and we had a real conversation about what the issue was and she understood it. And she, she did not, you know, she also, she understood what was going on and, and she, and, and the love and support from her was huge, but it was also like a motivating factor is like, I need to be able to be there for my daughter. I need to be able to be there for my wife. I need to be an example. Um, you know, and I also know where this takes me. I play the tape out. It's trust me the the using and drinking for me, it's not fun. Drinking and using used to be, it used to be, uh, you know, fun. It became a lifestyle, and then it became a way of survival. So whenever I utilize, like if I use drugs or alcohol, there's no fun left in it. Uh, it's in a spot where it's very dark, isolated, uh, and not wanting to be present. Uh, and the uh, only way I know to be able to deal with that stuff is to identify the issues. I, I call it a triple-A modality. It's, it's, it's awareness, acceptance, and action. If I'm not aware of what's going on, I'm not going to be able to accept what's happening. And if I don't accept what's happening, I'm not going to be able to take, uh, take action on it. So I, I, I pause in that moment. And I really identify what's going on, accept what I need to do so I can take the appropriate action to better the situation. Uh, well, this is so interesting. Thank you so much. I, I mean, I think it's interesting that you brought up the the body image issues starting to happen because that was another big thing that people are wanting to learn about is different food addiction, body issues, and how that can translate into so many different things in our life. So um, I thank you for being so vulnerable with us and sharing with us today. And um, please, if you can send in that information for our listeners in regards to if, you know, if they're struggling with alcoholism or any of those types of things, that would be amazing. 100%. I'm more than happy to. Oh, thank you for thank your you so time. Thank you for having me as well. Jason just paired with the Red Songbird Foundation. The foundation just announced its scholarship program that will donate 100000 towards the treatment of someone with mental health or substance abuse issues. Find out all the info at beachhousetreatment.com slash scholarship. Wow, that was such a great conversation. And how amazing that both Jason and Cameron said the key to staying sober for them is in the routine, meditation, exercise. I mean, that's pretty eye opening. Um, But I also wanted to read through those questions that Jason said that you could look through because I think it would be helpful. Have you ever decided to stop drinking for a week or so, but only lasted for a couple of days? Yes or no? Do you wish people would mind their own business about your drinking? Stop telling you what to do. Yes or no. Have you ever switched from one kind of drink to another in the hope that this would keep you from getting drunk? Yes or no. Have you had to have an eye opener upon awakening during the past year? Do you drink to get started or to stop shaking? That is a pretty sure sign that you're not drinking socially. Do you envy people who can drink without getting into trouble? Be honest. Doctors say that if you have a problem with alcohol and keep drinking, it will get worse, never better. Eventually you will die or end up in an institution for the rest of your life. The only hope is to stop drinking. Has your drinking caused trouble at home? Do you ever try to get extra drinks at a party because you do not get enough? Do you tell yourself you can stop drinking at any time you want to, even though you keep getting drunk when you don't mean to? Have you missed days of work or school because of drinking? Do you often have blackouts? A blackout is when we have been drinking hours or days, which we cannot remember. When we came to AA, we found out that this is a pretty sure sign of alcoholic drinking. Have you ever felt that your life would be better if you did not drink? Many of us started to drink because drinking made life seem better, at least for a while. By the time we got into AA, we felt trapped. We were drinking to live and living to drink. We were sick and tired of being sick and tired. Wow. So I think that that's an important quiz to take. I mean, there's so many different matters we can get into in regards to addiction from social media addiction to food addiction to sex addiction. Um, Please write in whatever it is that you want us to talk about, and we will get into it at teddyt at iheartradio.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to Teddy Teapot on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first class luxury meets world class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring, well, The Kardashians, of course. 
and Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 